All righty. I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Most Christians know the story, but this is not a passage that people turn to for a quick pick-me-up. Um, now, this is a passage that's in here because the Bible does not shy away from the gritty, sometimes depressing uh, realities of life. So in Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12, the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Brothers and sisters, even this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this day and for this passage. Thank you for being with your servant, even as he languished and even as he died. Thank you for vindicating the righteous and holding accountable the guilty. We pray to you in the name of your son. Amen. So we just sang from, or I'm sorry, we didn't just sing. Our choir just sung to us, the Lord is my shepherd. And that is, of course, Psalm 23, in which we are told, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want he leadeth me beside still waters. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He restoreth my soul. You know the psalm. He makes a banquet for me in the presence of my enemies. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23 is beloved 
It's cherished by believers old and new, young and old, as a precious promise about the presence and power of God to direct and order our steps. Where was God for John the Baptist? Was John 20, was Psalm 23 true for John the Baptist? If it was not true, then how do we have confidence for us? And if it was true, then then let that shape our understanding of what it means for God to be with us. This passage, as I said before we read scripture, is is not something we go to for a quick pick-me-up. We we love going to those highlight A-list passages that show triumphs and victories. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible is 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. Victory! We love reading about the Exodus, the crossing through the Red Sea. Some of you, if you're more hardy, you might like some of the battle scenes where God's enemies are vanquished. And of course, we treasure those passages that are precious promises to us. But understand this, brothers and sisters. Don't interpret those precious promise passages through the lens of triumphalism. Meaning that what it would look like for God to be with you is to vanquish, defeat, and dominate the opposition. Victory is amazing and it's sweet. But oftentimes, in the decree and providence of God, what it looks like in a world in which there's mission going on and competing gods at play and competing visions of reality at play. The way we best and most clearly articulate that there is a God who is greater, that there is a reality which is truer, there is a good that is gooder and a beauty that's not beautier more beautiful is by holding firm in the face of trouble and tragedy it is this vision of the spiritual realities that play around us that enable us to see behind the curtain, that enable us to find the value and the meaning in events which, if you operate from a worldly perspective, are utterly devoid of anything beyond Machiavellian real politic. So let's look at this passage. Because while it is not a pick-me-up passage, This story describes 
the tragic yet glorious death of John the Baptist. And, and you see a, an expose, an insight into the, the wicked, here personified by Herod Antipas. And you see, even in what's not said, an expose into the heart of the faithful. So this entire episode, beginning uh, at verse 3, is told as a flashback. And the entire flashback, verse 3 through verse 12, is there to explain why it is in verse 2, Herod believes that Jesus simply must be John the Baptist back from the dead. And the reason he's saying he's John the Baptist is because in verse 1, Herod has now, just now, finally heard about Jesus. Jesus has finally risen to the level that he has popped on the radar of the ruler. He's long been on the radar of the religious establishment, but now the civil authorities have him in sight. And what can possibly explain all these things that Herod is hearing about, that he's done these wonders and he's proclaimed with great power, that he's silenced the most learned men of the day? What could possibly explain this? It must be John the Baptist back from the dead. And understand that him saying this is not just an expression of wonder and amazement. It's terror. He killed John the Baptist in his own prison. But now he's come back from the dead. What might you think this resurrected dude that you just killed might want to do now that he's back? He's afraid. Okay? This is why when John, or when Herod believes and ascribes to Jesus the identity of John the Baptist and that he's certain that he's back from the dead, this is why when this news gets reported to him, so the flashback goes from verse 3 through 12. Verse 13 says, when Jesus hears of this, he withdraws. Okay, some of you may have been led to believe that this means he hears the news about, G about John and he goes away to mourn. That's not what's happening there. In Matthew, whenever someone, that formula is used, someone hears and then withdraws, it's always to avoid a threat. Jesus understands that now that he's been brought into the, the, the gaze of the king, and the king is terrified. He knows that it would cause premature problems for his ministry. So he makes a strategic withdrawal from that region. The context or the, the scene is telling. The scene of this flashback is a birthday party. An innocuous event, right? Wrong. One of the 
interesting facts about the Bible is that oftentimes wicked rulers, evil people are depicted, are, their stories are surrounded by the context of debauched, sensuous revelries, celebrations of various kinds. Oftentimes there's alcohol flowing like here, there's sexuality involved, but the wicked rulers in the Bible are oftentimes depicted in these contexts and it's, it's at these types of events where either bad things happen, such as here or, or when the, uh, in, in Esther, when there's the plot to kill the Jews or, or, when, or, or, or God confronts people at these events, such as in Daniel when Belteshazzar is is confronted by the writing on the wall at this kind of debauched event. Understand that when the Bible so frequently makes use of that scenery, that imagery of of kings being surrounded by sensuous revelries, it's a testament to the hedonistic and worldly, sensual appetites that pervade the fleshly-minded. If this world is supreme, then what greater good could there be than the attainment of position and the acquisition of materials for the purpose of facilitating ease and pleasure. Seriously. What, 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 what could be higher good than that if this world is supreme? Position and possessions exist to facilitate ease and pleasure. But it is precisely this world that the kingdom of God invades. It is precisely this world that we are told is not eternal, is not supreme, but is instead passing away. Only the fool lives as if the now is the ultimate. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is the mindset of debauched, worldly living that is on display here. And yet again, the tradition of bad things happening in these sensuous contexts is continued. There's a few things here about Herod Antipas that I want to point out from this passage. His this is Herod Antipas. Uh, he was one of the sons of Herod the Great. There's a number of Herods mentioned in the Bible, and the Great is the first. And like so frequently, the subsequent leaders don't live up to the glories of the, of the predecessor. But after Herod the Great died, he was the only one that was actually given the title of king. 
Sometimes the New Testament will use the vernacular and refer to King Agrippa or whatever else. Understand, they may have self-styled themselves as kings, but in the overarching countenance of the Roman Empire, of which they were simply puppet states, they were tetrarchs. What's the difference? To the commoner, none. A tetrarch means ruler of a fourth part. Because Herod the Great's kingdom was broken up between four entities. But to someone who values pride and face above all other things, the difference between king and tetrarch is the same as the difference between assistant regional director and assistant to the regional director. A vain, proud, Vapid man wants position and title, which is why he's technically called Tetrarch, which was his technical Roman designation, but later you'll see he's referred to as king, and that's going by what he would have wanted everyone to call him in the common parlance. But Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great. His brother... Herod Philip, or Philip Herod, Philip, was another one. And both of these men were married. Herod the Great was, I'm sorry, Herod Antipas was married to a woman named Phasileus. She was the daughter of a king in in the east of of the area, the the king of what would be nowadays a lot of the the Arabian Peninsula, Nabatea. So Herod Antipas and his wife, Phasileus, and then Herod's brother Philip with his wife, Herodias, the two pairs had made a trip to Rome to pay homage to Caesar. There in Rome, Herod Antipas met Herodias, the wife of his brother, And they fell in love. And they decided, and let's ditch the spouse we have and let's get married together. So Herod Antipas divorced his wife, Phasileus, which caused much anger on the part of her father, and we'll get to that in a bit. And Herodias divorced her husband, Philip. I thought women couldn't do anything in the ancient world. Don't believe everything you've been told. Herodias divorced her husband, and they had started living together, and they lived together, according to Josephus, for a few years before they got married. And Herodias brought her daughter from her union with Philip, Salome, and she would have been at this time 12 to 14 years of age. So this had just happened. No wonder John the Baptist spoke out against it. John the Baptist was not a New Testament pastor. 
John the Baptist was the last of the old covenant prophets. And prophets speaking truth to power was absolutely par for the course in the old covenant. In fact, the failure to speak out against the corruption of the religious and civil leaders is part of the indictment against the the so-called prophets in the Old Testament. So when John the Baptist speaks out against the unlawfulness of what Herod Antipas and Herodias are doing, he is absolutely par for the course doing what a prophet should have done. There's actually nothing exceptional about what he's saying. The law in multiple places condemns what has transpired as a form of incest. So every teacher, every religious leader should have been saying something to the same effect. But yet, based on the context, the sound coming from the rest of the religious establishment was a resounding nothing. Nothing. Meanwhile, these same religious leaders love to get down into the weeds and control and manage and shame every detail of the lives of the rabble. And yet, gross immorality brazen contempt for God's law was met with nothing. It's because not only were the religious leaders wicked, but they were more worldly wise than John. You see, worldly wisdom says in a context like this, There's no due process. There was no due process for John. He wasn't arrested for breaking the law. Civil code 14.1 paragraph C. No, he's arrested because he angered the king. There's no due process. And in an environment like that, if I anger the powers that be and he punishes me, then then there's all the good that I can't do. Think about it. If I just shut my mouth about this, think of all the ministry that I'm freed up to do. That's a terrible logic that was popular then and it's still popular now. And that's worldly wisdom. John the Baptist knew that his mission in life was to confront people with the holiness of God and the absolute unbending standard that is God's righteousness, which applies to king and peasant alike. You want to speak of equality under the law? That's it. Kings don't get preferential treatment. 
But Herod here, you see this in verse 2, demonstrates a guilty conscience, a paranoid, superstitious view of the world. There was absolutely no precedent for a dead man to have his head get reattached to his shoulders and come back alive. That was not Jewish thought. He's superstitious. And he's paranoid that John's going to come back to me. And doesn't the Bible speak about that? About how the wicked run even when no one pursues. Law enforcement frequently talk about how people, when, when they are on the run, and they feel like every siren they hear is, is the one that's coming for them. They, they feel it. And he felt it. He felt the guilt. For even if the social system at the time wouldn't have punished him for harming John, God's moral law is written on our hearts, and he knew that what he had done was murder. And so his soul is troubled. His conscience is pricked. But yet a conscience pricked that doesn't turn to the great forgiver is a conscience that soon becomes numb. That scars over and is much harder to prick in the future. Not only was Herod paranoid and guilt-ridden, and superstitious. But like so many tyrants, he feared the people. It was fear of the people that we learn in Josephus that specifically made him so outraged by what John was saying about the legitimacy of his marriage because none of the Jews liked the Herodians. That whole family had been imposed on them by Rome. They weren't Jews. At best, they were half-breeds, and they despised it. But when John the Baptist was decrying their union as unlawful, and his popularity was so incredible, we learn from Josephus that Herod was afraid that at any moment, John could turn that popularity into a revolt. And so he arrested him. But the same fear that led him to arrest John kept John alive because he was afraid that killing John would trigger that same people into the uprising he feared. Fear. Fear in his soul. Fear of maintaining his political position. Fear. And then in the heat of the moment, there's this drunken party, and it's, and it's disgusting. This, this girl, who is now his stepdaughter, or, or practically his stepdaughter, who, who also, by, by degrees of, of consanguinity, is actually his, his like, second great niece already. She's 12 to 14, and the connotations are very clear here. This was, this was not come out and showcase your, your ballet skills. This was a sensuous dance. 
And it so pleased him that this king made, this is a stupid thing to offer. I'll give you up to half my kingdom, whatever you want. He would not have thought that, that she's going to cut off someone's head. I mean, good night. But what if she had taken him up on that? Yeah, I want half your kingdom, pal. I mean, what a stupid thing to offer. Which goes to show that he was being mostly rhetorical. But because of the dignified guests he had, the high-positioned guests he had, he felt the need to save face. Fear of losing face. Fear in his conscience that the dead have literally risen for vengeance. Fear of the people. And now fear of losing face. Do you see how fear so so has this man in his grip? It controls. And indeed, the Bible speaks of that. Which is why Jesus came to defeat the one who through fear kept us enslaved. Fear made this king a prisoner. Herod tried to assuage his conscience at many points by trifling with religion. We see in Mark 6, verse 20, that Herod was simultaneously perplexed, troubled, but also he, he loved chatting with John. He liked what he had to say. He trifled with it. But religion was not for him. It was for other people. In this regard, Herod follows in the footsteps of, of many of the leaders in world history. Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, for example. Religion has great social value, but it's not for me. I'm presently, I finished my trilogy on Teddy Roosevelt, and then I read a biography of James Madison, uh, and I'm presently reading a biography of Napoleon, just a truly titanic figure on the world stage. And one of the good things he did is he uh, undid a lot of the ridiculous excesses of the French Revolution. The French Revolution was so intentionally anti-God that in order to wipe away the, the old order, they had abandoned a normal week and had to adopted a 10-day week. And Napoleon was like, this is insane. And so he abolished the 10-day week and went back to a seven-day week, and he granted great religious protections and freedoms because he understood the civic value of religion. But it wasn't for him. This, too, describes Herod Antipas. But characteristic of just about every tyrant that has ever lived on the world stage, Herod follows in the footsteps of pushing a value system, advocating a sense of decorum amongst the populace while personally and privately living a different kind of life. 
having values that are not in sync with what they say everyone else should have. A few things right here. First, there's the whole fact of the marriage. That whole thing was, was a disgusting offense to Jewish understanding of morality. Second, the very fact that he's celebrating a birthday. Jews did not celebrate birthdays. They knew how old they were. They, they knew, but Jews did not do birthdays. There's a Christian cult that likewise doesn't do birthdays, and they argue that it's because the Jews didn't do birthdays, so neither should we. I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to do so, but what I am saying is that in a culture in which birthdays aren't done, doing a pagan practice of having a birthday is imposing a foreign thing into that culture that they... And then, of course, the Jews had several hundred years of royal history. And not once, there is absolutely no precedent for having a princess come out and dance for the sensual amusement of visitors. This was offensive to the Jews of the day. Josephus writes about this. It was offensive. At multiple levels then, Herod Antipas continues the practice that so many tyrants have of there's a way for thee and a way for me. And we should resist and denounce and all of that was because and propped up by fear. Meanwhile, John the Baptist, who had been under arrest since Matthew 4, 12. So for the 10 preceding chapters, John has been under arrest. He's been in prison for, most scholars believe, two years of Jesus' ministry. John was alive yet imprisoned. And now he meets this end. John was persecuted for calling out the sins of the leaders. And I want you to understand right now that that is why he was imprisoned, not for any abstract philosophical doctrinal proposition. Too often, Christians are willing to hedge and be silent on the great moral issues. And they want to imagine that they are being faithful Christians as long as they affirm some abstract uh, philosophical, theological proposition. Christians don't go to the, to, to, the death, to the death chambers for intellectual propositions. To say Jesus is Lord is not just a proposition that's to be affirmed. It's a rubber meets the road reality of personal loyalty that calls us to say what you are doing is wrong. Which is what John the Baptist did. Christians are not found to be offensive in our day because we believe in Trinity. That we believe in something called imputation. No one cares. They do care that we say this is wrong. So understand, when Jesus calls you to be salt and light, he's not saying that you're going to stand out in the world because 
you affirm the hypostatic union as, a, as an abstract concept. And that as long as I affirm substitutionary penal atonement as a principle, that I'm safe. To be salt and light means that you are loyal to not King Herod, not Caesar behind him, but to Jesus, the one before whom all knees must bow. And that when Jesus says something is right or when Jesus says something is wrong, you understand that's not just private morality. That this is the way it is. And so wretchedness and godlessness must be identified. For indeed, how can there possibly be repentance if there is no identification? John had been saying, we're told in verse 4, had been saying, means he said it more than once. Some might have been tempted to think he had an axe to grind. Or he was on his hobby horse. But it was the one thing not being challenged by the religious establishment. The problems and faults of the people, oh, every Pharisee and Sadducee could point that out under the sun. But the one thing not being pointed out was the immorality of the leaders. And what's interesting is we learn from Mark that Herod regularly spoke to John. If fear is why Herod had arrested John, and if fear was simultaneously keeping him alive, I strongly suspect that at numerous points in these two years of imprisonment, that John was essentially offered something like this John, shut your mouth, and I'll let you go. There's so many things that are going wrong in the world. Talk about that. Don't talk about me and my wife. And I'll let you go. Think of all the good you can do. And John was faithful. He had a crystal clear understanding of self. While in Matthew 11, he may have had some questions about Jesus he never wavered in his understanding of self that God had put him here to call people to repentance and he was faithful faithful to the end and that is glorious you see back to the beginning Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Where was God with him? God didn't promise John that he's going to triumph over all opposition. But God did promise that in the midst of troubling, trying, dismal circumstances, that he would be with him. And the difference is this. Herod, though free, Though politically connected, though wealthy, though with the power of life and death itself in his hands, was a prisoner of fear, whose decisions were controlled not by his free will, but rather by his fear. 
But John, though languishing in prison, was being led beside still waters. He was lying down in green pastures. He was enjoying a banquet set in the face of his foes. So that he was strengthened to be faithful. Strengthened to carry the course. And so that when that axeman came, he didn't cry and whimper and beg. He went into the house of the Lord forever. John the Baptist, the last of the old covenant prophets, the forerunner of Jesus, died because a wretched king was played by his bitter wife. But oh, in the providence of God, the forerunner of Christ was ushered into glory, forerunning the very end that Jesus would meet. But this time, when Jesus met that end, it wasn't a tragedy. It was the ultimate conquest. Our God is great. His kingdom is greater. Hold fast. Be faithful. Be true, even as he has proven himself faithful and true to you. And you will indeed wear the victor's crown. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the great lessons we can learn. We ask that you would be with us in our time of difficulty and trial. Grant that our gaze would not be set on this world, but on the next. That our affections would not be held in the palm of the God of this age, but that our affections would be set upon you, the rock of ages. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.